Aloha. Well, here we Aloha. are at another opportunity for a, a conversation, this time with a, a very interesting person, uh, Nicholas Snow, who has done amazing things within his uh, journey to self. Um, we also have on uh, the call today, William Finney. So hi, William. Aloha. Good to see you. It's good to see you. The, um, this is part of the uh, Prospero's uh, Sunday uh, meeting series. Uh, it's a, the format for this one is going to be a wee bit different. But um, let's go ahead and bring my guest on, Nicholas Snow. Nicholas. Well, hello, Calvin, and hello, William. I'm honored to be with you today. We are just honored also to have you here. Let's um, start with um, your place. Well, let, let's start with where um, I met you. Where you we met. Me, you, mm -hmm. you want me to explain where we met? Mm -hmm. I, I will get into that. But one of the things that just jumped out in my mind is you, you referenced the journey to self is that I think it's a journey that we never complete. Mm -hmm. And even though it might seem like we're well along the way, my experience is that I discover I have so much far to travel. Uh, which is why it's so valuable to develop tools to live in the present moment and to yes. be fully alive now. And uh, the way that I met you is we're both residents of the Coachella Valley, which is in the, uh, which is where Palm Springs and other cities are located in the uh, Southern part of California. And uh you are a member of a group of which I am an ally called Brothers of the Desert, which is a group to uh, empower Black gay men and their allies. And I uh, met you at one of their events. And I've shared before, and I don't mind sharing, that as public as I am in many ways of my life, I do experience social anxiety. It's easy for me to be front and center in a professional capacity. But I find, especially since the pandemic, it's even it's very challenging for me to just be in normal social situations. So one of the things I really appreciated about you is that because somehow we had connected earlier in the process of that weekend of activities, uh, you became an important touchstone for me to make to help me feel grounded and a part of. Uh, and that's how we met. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, um, there was um, the event you were recording uh, at that time. It's part of what you do. Um, and so that was really kind of exciting also. Um, and uh, could you mention a bit about that? Well, certainly. Uh, I am building an online television network called Promo Homo TV available at the website promohomo.tv. And uh, I've been a, what I like to call a multimedia entertainment activist for decades. 
And the current incarnation is this new network that I'm building. It's not a typical broadcast network. All, all programming is available via streaming on demand and often live. And uh, I do have a lot of footage that I shot at that particular event. I haven't used it yet because it's not time sensitive, mm -hmm. but I've been in touch with the leadership of the organization to figure out when it would be most powerful and valuable uh, to use that footage. But I'm often out covering events. Um, I have an amazing and growing, I don't say amazing in any sort of egomaniacal way, but I have an amazing and growing body of work, and a lot of it has documented important moments in life for so many. Mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about um, your social anxiety in that, and where we really got to talk was um, the final day of the event, which was at another ally of the desert, which is Black Book, which is a restaurant in, um, in uh, the Coachella Valley. Did you want to speak a bit about, about that? Yes, I walked into Black Book. I got there early for the outdoor brunch. It was still during the pandemic. So we were um, masked when indoors and we were uh, showing proof of vaccination to go to businesses locally. That was part of what was going on. And I got to the brunch early and I was experiencing anxiety and I thought, well, what am I going to do? And my thought was just to sit at an empty table and see who joined me. That was like going to be my strategy. But instead I saw you sitting at that time, an empty table and I joined you, which um, really was extremely helpful and i just i actually get a nice feeling of relaxation when i remember that moment and uh i really appreciate uh you calvin because um uh i think that at that particular event uh it's for black gay men and uh i'm kind of an outsider as an ally but uh you are one of the older members of the group. And I imagine my projection, my imagination, uh, even my life experience would tell me that maybe it's difficult for you to be um, in groups where that might be a factor. I don't know if that's the case, but um, I felt at least my projection was you might be kindred spirits in how connected we might feel at different times for different reasons. Yes. Yes. And I think that that is true when we are in the public uh, and doing um, our varying missions or those things that we're called to do. And speaking of the things that we're called to do, just to try and get the steps along your path. Um, let's begin with where you were born. I was born in Tucson, Arizona, into a military family. My father was stationed at uh, Davis Monthan Air Force Base Hospital. I mean, I'm in Air Force Base. I was born in that hospital. Um, my mom had met my father in college and actually dropped out of college to marry him, which is the last thing in the world my mom's parents, my grandparents wanted her to do. I was the second 
uh, child of three. And uh, because we were a military family, we were transferred to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and uh, then Little Rock, Arkansas. And during the Little Rock, Arkansas phase, I had a younger brother who was born. So there was then three, three boys. Um, also during the Arkansas phase, my father left my mother for an airline stewardess that he met on the way home from the Vietnam War on a commercial flight. And uh, my mom tried to make our life work in Little Rock, Arkansas, but that didn't quite work. So she moved my two brothers and myself back to Yuma, Arizona, where uh, she went back to college, to community college, and got her undergraduate degree while we lived with my grandparents. And then uh, she got accepted to Northern Arizona University. So she moved my two brothers and myself there, where we lived in what was referred to at the time as married housing. Now it would be referred to as family housing where uh, she finished her education. So I actually grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona from the third grade until early college. Uh, mm -hmm. The experience of seeing varying sides of, uh, of the country and also the the transition that I think that uh, military life would have on young children must have been very interesting. And also going from a primary family to that of a, uh, of, uh, a grandparents uh, that. So did you have a larger sense of, of community when you went back to um, living with your, your grandmother at first or no? Well, I was, you know, such, I was so young. I was in the first grade when we moved back to be to, to Yuma, Arizona. But mm -hmm. one of the things I don't want to uh, miss the opportunity to talk about is so I was in Little Rock, Arkansas when I was in kindergarten. How old is someone when they're in kindergarten? Does anybody About know? Five or six. All right. So, William, yeah. what, what do you think? Five? Yeah, that hand was to say five. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, that means that the age of five years old, it would have been 1967 in Little Rock. And I could swear I remember segregation. Mm -hmm. I could swear that I remember signs for white people and for black people in, in 1967 Little Rock. I don't know that for a fact. And I think the history books could tell me if segregation was still happening in 1967 in Little Rock. But um, I feel like I have powerful memories related to segregation mm -hmm. from that particular uh, period of my life. Um, but back in Arizona, um, it, yeah, it was, it was great to live, you know, who doesn't love their grandparents? And who doesn't love all that love and adoration that comes from grandparents uh, that you really grew up away from? So just the stability of that home for those two years and uh, my mom having the opportunity to rebuild her life, 
that was all uh, important to me. And I remained extremely close to my grandmother in many ways uh, until her death, um, decades later. Uh, so yeah, my uh, Yuma, Arizona will always have a special place in my heart, but I ended up growing up in, of course, in Flagstaff. I think one of your first uh changes that really kind of set in motion who you were going to be was when you went to the university there in Arizona, was it? Yes, but I think I want to backtrack a bit. Uh, mm-hmm. And we didn't really address this in our um, previous conversations. Uh, I was bullied tremendously as a kid uh, for being an effeminate little boy. And um, also, my mom was poor uh, when we were in in uh, family housing. And I know we ate a lot of beans. So I was an effeminate little boy who farted a lot at school. You know, not the best circumstances for, (laughs) you know, winning over your peers. I remember Mm -hmm. one time my teacher asked me if I had to go to the bathroom. I didn't have to go to the bathroom. I was just farting because we ate a lot of pinto beans. Um, and, uh, I'll never forget in the third grade during the music portion of our class, it may have been the fourth grade. It was one of the two years that I was at this particular elementary school. Um, there was, uh, the music portion of the class and somehow I got asked to sing a part of this song in front of the whole class. And I was a good singer and I have remained a good singer and, That was my first experience of having a talent that I displayed before an audience that gave me some sort of feedback and love and acceptance. Um, So it really was my journey into my own creativity that helped me start very slowly down a path toward finding some level of Mm self-esteem. And by the end of my high school uh, experience, I was president of the drama club. I was vice president of the choir. Um, I had been on the school newspaper. I had received a a local award. Um, I was like the exchange club youth of the month that was written up in the newspaper. Uh, I was involved in uh, statewide music festivals and competitions and uh, Um, It was late in my senior year where I actually met uh, the girl that would become my girlfriend for a couple of years. And we so happened to have plans to go to the same college. We started out at Northern Arizona University. And I ended up, we both ended up actually going to ASU, but at different times. And it was in the process of... uh, going out with her that I realized that I was that I started to look more deeply at my own sexuality and I realized that I thought oh I'm bisexual and I believe it would it's a really natural part of the coming out journey at that point in history without the positive role models and reinforcement that have been around for a long time for for a gay person to think that they might be bisexual. So I, I am a gay man, but I had a powerful emotional, physical 
connection to this uh, this woman when we were both very young that had all the hallmarks of a loving relationship and knowing that I wanted to be honest with someone else caused me to look more deeply at my own sexuality and so I shared with um, her now I I think that that's kind of important when we look at the new individuals for uh that are coming up uh sexually today uh that are that are asking not to be labeled because let's face it back then we only had two two labels you were either straight or you were you were gay but with this range and also knowing that sexuality can move back and forth that i think that uh, that natural coming out that you were talking about that would have been a natural way to do that uh, I I also know that men in the 1800s and and uh, even in the 1900s, um, um, what some of their first experiences might have been with a man and then went on to a woman. So knowing that that scale moves back and forth, I think it's really important. But it it seems to have given you an a a, a, a better sense of who you were that relationship with that that young woman at that time was it not well certainly i uh i in the process of being honest with her i was more honest with myself her initial reaction was to break up with me but for three (laughs) three days later we got back together and she decided it wasn't an issue if i wasn't um going to act on it ultimately we did break up for different reasons and um at which point I felt that I owed it to myself to do more deep exploration of who I was. And uh, interestingly, I've gone through different, uh, um, uh, I've I've evolved through different views of who and what God is and spirituality. And I was raised Episcopalian. And at this particular time, I was actually in a born again Christian phase of my life. And, uh, so when I was coming out, I was coming out in the context of how Christians in the 80s were uh, identifying, you know, that basically gay was hell. I mean, this was when Jerry Falwell was huge and the moral majority and all of this stuff. And um, so part of my exploration was uh, to get involved in uh, the Metropolitan Community Church. Now, the Metropolitan Community Church is a universal fellowship founded by Troy Perry, who I actually have gone on to meet in different incarnations as an activist. Mm-hmm. But uh, each each congregation has its sort of own identity, and I was going to one that was very evangelical. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, my spirituality at the time was grounded in Christianity. And uh, also, and this is a huge part of my story, this is when we start, started hearing about what would become the HIV and AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, in a short period of time between the summer after my high school gr- graduation um, into the next old year and a half, so we're talking about 80 to 81, 82, 
my best friend committed suicide that I had been my best friend for many years growing up. He committed suicide and my great grandmother died. She died a, in the, in her nineties, but nevertheless, I was having this experience of death among in my peer who committed suicide, my great grandmother who died a natural death after a long life. And then people were starting to die of AIDS. And I was at Arizona State University majoring in communication, and I was sort of breaking out of, even without knowing it, my conservative Republican upbringing. I was also studying communication. So at the same time, I'm coming face to face with uh, the reality of life and death. I'm also seeing the importance of uh, and power of communication, and I'm realizing that uh, I'm gay and that my life could be very short and that I needed to make every moment count. And so really, because of what I learned from the courageous people who were living with and dying of AIDS at the time, uh, I, I learned that the most powerful thing I had to express was my own voice and my own truth. And so I began a journey where that has always been at the forefront of, of who I am. Um, so it forever changed my life those, those, those years. Mm-hmm. Well, there would be a lot that would have gone on to that. I think it's interesting that you found uh, the uh, Troy Perry and his church. It's interesting because in the Prosperos, uh, the group that, that, uh, this broadcast is taking place in, um, we would do uh, outreach to varying groups. And one of the groups that we did an outreach to and their fledgling state when they were getting started was the Metropolitan Community Church. And I had an opportunity to meet uh, Troy Perry and we got um, one, it was interesting that one or two of their people decided to Joined the Prosperos, and that was uh, um, um, Estelle and David Miles that we had gotten from that group at that point. So, so uh, yeah, there is those memories of that time as well as the epidemic that had uh, that had had started at that point that had really ruined a lot of individuals' lives. William, you you wanted to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to to throw in a commercial here for the Transcendentalism series lessons that we have on the Audio Center website, because in the early uh, in the early Transcendentalism lessons, I'm, I don't know the exact one. Fane tells the story about uh, about Troy Perry and um, uh, a uh, a march that was happening in Los Angeles. I think that weekend. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very entertaining and enlightening. So I just thought I'd throw that in there. It's, um, you know, transcendentalism number four or number three or something like that. I can't remember which one it is, but there you are. Thanks. Sorry. To- <laughs> no. One of the things I'd just like to throw in uh, is that um, after my born again Christian phase, I went into uh, kind of new age science of mind, church of religious science views of who and what God is. And then uh, later in life have become 
you know, I, I'm 21 years sober. So I've spent decades in a 12 step environment where everybody brings to it their own or no view of a higher power. And the way that I articulate my spiritual philosophy, and I've used these words for a long time now, because I'm very clear about it, is that I honor and express any part of any teaching that celebrates the universal equality of humanity. And I reject any part of any teaching that in order to be right has to make other people wrong. Mm-hmm. And the reason that I actually love that definition is it's so inclusive. And for me, the, the power of inclusivity is the power of inclusion to include all sorts of relevant experiences from my journey. So for example, I loved singing in church in either the Episcopal choir or doing solos at the MCC church. I like the charismatic uh, practice of raising your hands to a higher power of allowing yourself to be physically moved by what they would call the Holy Spirit, have a physical experience of your higher power, um, the, the, the different modes of worship, the ceremonies. I mean, all of those things can be moving and powerful at times. The flip side of the coin is, I actually don't feel comfortable consistently engaging with any type of congregation that has a very narrow and specific view of yeah. what the answers are to these questions. Mm-hmm. No, I, and I think that that is wonderful to have uh, the variety of experiences that you had in churches and that. that In my growing up, that was one of the things. My parents um, would not have allegiance to any, any uh, church because of horrible things that had happened in my family's past in that. Uh, and so, but they felt that having foundation and having a, a sense of knowing a higher power is important so they would send us off to church and they would tell us they didn't care what church we went to just as long as we went to some church (laughs) well you know so many so many churches (laughs) so many churches are are structured in a way that's supposed to prepare you for what's next you know or, or scare you into not being ready and i have to tell you that when i get to the end of this life if I discover that this is all there is, I will still, if I had the capability at that moment, would still be grateful for the faith that I have in my life because the faith that I have in my life has transformed my life. The faith that I have in a power greater than myself Mm -hmm. transforms my life. I talk about legions of angels swooping in and carrying me. It's a metaphor, but it's very real in many ways. The the most uncanny things have shown up in my life when I've most needed them. And I also love the whole notion, getting back to the the world of 12 steps and, and other spiritual practices. A lot of people will tell you that 12 steps aren't spiritual and they don't have to be, but Within 12-step work and also among other 
spiritual practices and even psychology is the power of now, mm -hmm. the power of living in the moment. Mm -hmm. the, the, and when you think about fear and how it holds us back, um, one of uh, there's slogans that really work in, in, in 12-step programs, for example, put first things first. first. Yes. <laughs> uh, one day at a time. <laughs> Uh, one of the things I love is do the next indicated thing, let go and let God, or in this case, uh, let go and let a higher power. Yeah. So, so I might be overwhelmed and bogged down and afraid and depressed or whatever it might be because of all of these things. Well, if I can just pick something and also, <laughs> also if I'm living in today, as opposed to like, I have a friend, a good friend I've known for decades, but he's always ruminating about what might happen. He's very, <laughs> he spends, yeah. he spends so much time and energy and angst on what could happen. Uh -huh. And he, he did that, for example, the pending war in Ukraine. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying we shouldn't have worried about it. And the outcome he was afraid of did ultimately come to be, but I, I didn't rob myself of my peace of mind, of my yes. serenity, of my ability to go on with my life. When all this was going on, I lived in the moment. I did my, my best to be educated. I tried to identify ways that I could be part of the solution, tried to be sensitive to what's going on. It's like a living in the present, I think, is just so important. It is, and not out of our fears. And, um, you know, and uh, our practice with uh, what we call translation in RHS is to help individuals not to live within their fears, but to live in their moment. Um, but uh, getting back to your, your, your journey and uh, after college, uh, what happened next? Well, I... Um... I, I don't think I've ever said this in an interview, so you're good. Um, I, uh, I was committed to being out of the closet uh, in my work. And so I put an ad in the classified section of the Advocate magazine uh, that I was a recent college graduate looking for work. And I came up with this um, very Hollywood kind of resume. And uh, I ended up going to Tampa, Florida to work an ex for an executive search firm. And uh, I was only there for a couple of months before that kind of blew up. Um, there's a variety of reasons that it blew up and I don't want to disparage uh, them in any way. I don't even know if they exist today. Um, but from there, I ended up going to Montgomery, Alabama, where my, my father's uh, second wife lived. My father was killed in the Air Force when I was in the fourth grade. And my father had remarried the airline stewardess and had two kids. But I, we grew up separately from my stepmother and her two children my half brother and half sister we didn't grow up together but because they were fairly near 
Tampa, Florida. I went there for a period of time. And then uh, my cousin, my mom's cousin, who's in the movie business, happened to be in Atlanta making the movie, working on the movie Made in Heaven with Timothy Hutton and Kelly McGillis. And so he put me... uh, he put me up in a hotel room and hired me to be a production assistant on his movie. And that's what I did. I worked for, a, I don't know, whatever weeks or months were left on this movie. And then uh, he encouraged me to, oh, by the way, I was born with the name Snow, which is what I go by <laughs> now. Um, but my stepfather asked me if I wanted to be adopted. And at the time that he asked me this, though, I was in Arizona and I was over the age of 18. And I uh, couldn't be adopted, but I could change my name. So I did legally change my name to his last name, uh, uh, which was Magnuson. So I graduated from high school and I have snow on the diploma. I graduated from junior college and I have Magnuson on the diploma, but then I came out, I came out and my, my mom and stepdad asked me to no longer use that name. Mm. So instead of reverting back to snow, being the drama queen that I am, I came up with, I legally changed my name to Nicholas St. John. And, uh, So I, uh, oh, Hollywood. <laughs> I have a high school, I have a college diploma that says Nicholas St. John. And in this graduation from uh, high school, college and this advertising campaign and the advocate and this early job and even the movie, the, the production assistant job, I was Nicholas St. John. But my cousin, Brian, he's alive and well today. Uh, um, he took me to Benihana in Atlanta and he wanted to know more about this whole name change thing and he said that if he had known I was going through this he would have offered his name and he thought I should go back to the name I was born with and so ultimately after that movie I ended up uh, getting I ended up moving to LA I stayed with him for a while he helped me get an important job at Lorimar Telepictures um and I got my own studio apartment and this was like around 1986. I want to say late 86. And uh, it's a whole different conversation, but I basically got myself fired from this job. Uh, This very important cushy job. I got myself fired from it. And, uh, in general, the issue was that I was very involved in all these transformational seminars and had this insane idea that I could create absolute miracles overnight, which isn't necessarily insane, but my, uh, my methodology was off and I did things that uh, basically got me fired from my job. My cousin Brian would say to me later that he's never seen anyone step on their dick quite the way I did. <laughs> And uh, um, then he helped me get a job as a production assistant on another movie, at which point I I, I went back to the Phoenix area for some sort of uh, event. And I found out that they had an opening for the executive director of the 
of the Lesbian and Gay Community Switchboard and Arizona AIDS Information Line in the Phoenix area. And I ended up getting that job as an interim consultant. I moved back to Arizona and I was working in that position, I wanna say maybe six, eight months at the most, but I wasn't a good fundraiser, funding was an issue. And uh, there were other issues of which I own. I mean, it's decades ago, I didn't remember all of them, but that didn't work out. And I just, it occurred to me that, oh, I want to, I want to follow my lifelong passion of being an actor. Uh, I had been the activist. I'd taken the effort to be out of the closet and find a job. And that didn't really, that job didn't work out. And I, and, uh, I thought, oh, I, I'm going to honor my desire to be an actor. So I moved back to Hollywood and, uh, uh, 87, 88. And uh, I took some classes at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute. I worked at temp agencies. Uh, I got a roommate situation through the gay roommate service, which was, you know, well before any sort of online networking, you literally went and signed up mm -hmm. and put your name in a book. And, <laughs> um, uh, and in 1988, I did another one of those transformational seminars called The Experience, which was formerly referred to as The Advocate Experience, and it was created by David Goodstein and Rob Eichberg. David Goodstein was the publisher of The Advocate, and, and Rob Eichberg, the late great Rob Eichberg, was a psychologist, and they had created The Experience, and I did that. I think it actually was my birthday weekend. Uh, my birthday is April 25th. So this would have been in 1988, um, at which point uh, I was 20, I was turning 28 years old. And for frame of reference, on April 25th, 2022, I will be 60. Um, but uh, I did the experience, it was extremely powerful. Uh, for me and throughout and through that I got connected to the first ever national coming out day so I was asked uh, uh, as a volunteer as a graduate of the experience to help with national coming out day because national coming out day was co-founded by the experience and national gay rights advocates and that whole that whole day came out of something that had happened uh, in the year preceding called the War Conference, where they had a hundred leading LGBT activists from around the country get together and identify priorities and projects. And one of them was at National Coming Out Day. So I ended up being one of the two full-time staff people on the first ever National Coming Out Day in 1988. And uh, in 1990, I became a board member of the Alliance for Gay and Lesbian Artists in the Entertainment Industry, uh, uh, AGLA, doesn't exist today. Um, it did not become GLAD, but I like to say that it evolved. It created the cultural context for GLAD to show up. And GLAD is the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation. It does exactly what it sounds like, but it's also been a watchdog committee, uh, a watchdog group for decades and does ama amazing work. And uh, that was in 1990. Now, going with this there, because of our time and that that's going on, 
with all of this work in Hollywood and that sort of thing, and then with your creativity about showing up. And I love the fact how you take responsibility of saying that this job didn't work out and the and not the blaming that we so so often see, but understanding that that might be a step to where you were going and you had to release that to be able to get to your next position. What is interesting is then how all of these groups and things led you to going to Asia. Yes, so... um... In 1991 uh, or so, I went to work at Cedar sinai Medical Center. I lived in West Hollywood. That was my day job. I was there for almost 10 years. And uh, in 1993, I started a public access television show in the LA area called Tinseltown's Queer, which I described as a Queen's version of Larry King. And I produced that show for seven years. Uh, and it was available to up to 600,000 households on a regular basis. I have the, the archives in my home and I'm working on coming up with funds to digitize everything and to preserve it. But um, through my work with that, uh, that TV show and my visibility in media and my writing for different columns in 1990, when I was with AGLA, the Alliance for Gay and Lesbian Artists, I started a column called Notes from Hollywood that got published as far away as Australia. And its purpose was to examine and strengthen the relationship between the uh, LGBTQ civil rights movement and the entertainment industry, thereby positively impacting the movement itself. Now, clearly in those years, I wasn't using LGBTQ. (laughs) I was was using gay or something Mm -hmm. like that. But So notes from Hollywood existed. I was published in various magazines and newspapers. I had this TV show. Then the internet started to happen and some internet entrepreneurs, Matt Scalarud and Fabrice Descendo, who created Gay Wired, reached out to me. And I became a personality on their website and their company grew. And in 2000, I left Cedar sinai and I began to work with their company that was growing during the infusion of... uh, of money into the dot-com environment in the, around that time frame, And uh, then the dot-bomb happened and I got laid off from that company. Uh, I had been the vice president of content development. I got laid off from the company, but one of the founders of the company, Matt, helped me create Notes from Hollywood as a website. And it was my intention to create it as a multimedia entertainment brand to exist on radio, on television, in print, in in photos and text. And I decided to base myself in Palm Springs because it was close enough to Hollywood that I could still report about Hollywood, but I could create a media presence for it here. And I ended up being published in several local newspapers, uh, LGBT magazines, uh, actually, And uh, I was a guest on a radio show for over a year here. Every Friday, I was doing entertainment reports. I was temping. I was doing a variety of things to make my money. And it was in the context of that that uh, I got invited to Thailand for with notes from Hollywood to 
talk about the Bangkok International, I, I mean, to work on the Bangkok International Film Festival, to report about it as a journalist. And um, so three years in a row, I was invited to Thailand, all expenses paid for this amazing film festival. And the second and third years that I participated, I was asked to moderate the big press conferences in front of the international media with people like Oliver Stone and Gerard Butler and uh, um, uh, you name it. I couldn't, I'm uh, Michael Douglas, uh, Miranda Richardson. So, so as this was going on, because as I said, uh, yeah, and we're getting and we're I want to bring us up to where you are now. Yes. Um, uh, how long were you in uh, Thailand? I lived there from 2006 to 2011. But in 2007, because of a rare slip in my safer sex behavior, I became HIV positive. I was published in local magazines and newspapers. I was reporting for English language television and I was doing some acting in movies and TV. And I decided to go public with my story, which I did about eight months later at a press conference. Actually, I became a positive in August of 2007. I confirmed it with a test on January 3rd of 2008. And October 11th of 2008, I had a press conference at the Foreign Correspondents Club of Thailand uh, to, to, to come out about my story in a part of the world where there is a lot of invisibility and stigma. And throughout that whole process, I began writing a journal, which actually evolved into a book called Life Positive, A Journey to the Center of My Heart, A Living Powerfully with HIV Memoir. Um, in 2011, my life was sort of slipping away from me in Thailand. I didn't have health insurance. And I returned to Palm Springs because I needed to become a client of DAP Health. At the, at the time, it was called Desert AIDS Project. So I came back to Palm Springs in 2011. In 2012, I became a resident of their affordable housing complex. In 2013, I created a podcast that was very popular for four years. I reached about 2 million total listeners in that time frame. And uh, then about five or six years ago, when online video became the thing, it, I realized, oh, I could do everything I've ever done under the banner of Promo Homo TV. Because in the 90s, I was referred to as LA's Primo Promo Homo on the go-go. And uh, <laughs> I actually planted that line in a press release that got printed in a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And then I could attribute it to the newspaper, but I'm the one that came up with it. So Promo Homo is something that I've been called. And now I own everything and my life and my history and my current work under the promohomo.tv banner. And I have become a consistent, leading, openly HIV positive activist and advocate as part of it. So here in the desert now, because there are so many activities that take place here in the desert. And um, how do you see yourself positioned as being one that that is going to um, lighten the burden of, of individuals and the uh, problems or stigmas that they go through? Well, my personal mission statement, as evidenced by my story, is to honor and express my creativity in a way that makes a difference. 
the mission statement of Promo Homo TV is connecting the circuitry of humanity by creating programming for LGBTQ plus everyone. And among my shows, I have Life Positive, a new show which spotlights people living with, impacted by, or working to bring about the end of HIV and AIDS. I have a show called Higher Powered, which takes recovery out of the closet and looks at uh, other uh, guests relevant to spirituality and, and, and thought. And I have uh, a travel show and a locally focused show and uh, I, I address politics and everything else. And I'm continuing to be out about everything in the context of doing this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that your whole self is out there. And I think that's the courage that is behind someone that with the anxieties and some of the fears that no matter what your particular situation is, that you can rise above it and that you can contribute. Well, thank you for that. And yes, I'm good at reaching the world from the safety of my own bedroom. But what I want to do is reach a few people by standing in front of them. Mm -hmm. So I'm working diligently to engage authentically with other human beings. I, on the day of this recording, I'm back at the gym now 12 days in a row uh, I am, I'm doing what I can to, to be part of the world. Uh, and I'm moving into a nightly time slot for Promo Homo TV. So people will be listening to this in perpetuity, but beginning around uh, March 6, March 17th, 2022, uh, my goal is to have an, uh, a new or encore episode of Promo Homo TV every single day. Uh, the, oh, my. That um, is it. <laughs> and uh, I'm uh, the content is free, but I have a voluntary subscriber campaign where people can support the network for as little as $10 a month. And anyone that does that in time will be invited to my 60th birthday party uh on the patio at 849 restaurant and lounge saturday april 24th it's by invitation only the way that you get invited is you subscribe um and people that live outside the area can attend that event event virtually i'm going to make that a, a possibility but i just want to make every day count because that's all we're guaranteed uh and to to continue to just move ahead and and uh, follow follow dreams and solve problems and jump hurdles and be authentic <laughs> and be part of the human race. And that's so important is to authentically show up within the human uh, uh, within the human race within the human experience. Uh, William, did you have something uh, uh, as as we are starting to wind down? Well, this is just such an incredible. Uh, wonderful experience to hear your story, Nicholas. Um, I have friends in the in the the industry. Um, you remind me of one of my best uh, acting buddies, a guy by the name of Ben Furman. Uh, and um, uh, so it's a it's 
<laughs> it's a wonderful, strange business. But the thing is that, um, I mean, it's the rocky road, right? There's been a rocky road. It's, it's not like you, you like, uh, were born with a silver spoon in your mouth and, and now you're broadcasting around the world. And I've noticed that is that for many people, um, and, my, and it's my story as well, it is the parts where you, there are these challenges that have to be dealt with. And, um, and that's where the best stuff that I ever come up with comes from there. And so I look at your story I've, from a brief, just a brief you know, rendition that you've given me and I'm totally impressed. And I, I, I all I, I just want to say, go promo, homo. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you I, for that. I think it's interesting too that uh, you bring up um, your um, um, uh, working through publication because um, I remember uh, William working in publication and doing uh, 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 a column in Hawaii for one of the small theaters there. Matter of fact, it was so funny. I remember going to, with William, to a um, rendition of um, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. It was just <laughs> outrageous. William, you wanna talk a little bit about your publishing work there? Yeah, I can definitely connect because I've I've uh, I've worked in publishing for um, well since I started volunteering at the Prospero Server Center in 1974. So uh, yeah, I was in Hawaii. I was I was the arts and entertainment uh, contributor for uh, West Hawaii Today, which is a little newspaper. Um, and I used to participate in the little the theater group there. And there are things that you can do. Like we had a children's program uh, in this theater one summer, just because of the enterprise of one of the other actresses. Um, that was how she made her living. She she would do school tours where she would uh, uh, um, go into the elementary schools, you know, not even the high school. She went to elementary schools, and we did a version of Hansel and Gretel, the the musical, with the music by Engelbert Humperdinck. Uh, which is just fabulously beautiful. Um, so the, these are experiences that, well, for example, just to, to share a story that maybe relates. There was one student in the group that um, she had an attitude. She was sulking all the time. She was like, you know, and so I had a group of five or six, and I was I was the person who was the choral director, right? I was asking them to to go ex do some exercises, some vocal exercises, and and she was like, I think maybe like terrified of singing or something, and she was like, and I looked right at her and I said, "Do you want to be in this?" And she said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, I want you to be in it, so let's go, huh? Let's go." So. Um, she just took off after that. She was amazing. And um, I have a picture of her, which is one of my most cherished pictures, where uh, the whole group of us got together on a spontaneous moment for a, for a picture. And um, so I was kneeling down on the floor, and she, she came over and she sat on my knee. And she became the literary, the literary editor of her high school newspaper, her high school literary magazine. So 
the impact that we have just by being with people and and connecting with them on some level is um, so important. Totally. Yeah, I I think that the homo uh, promo homo TV with an access uh, uh, when we think of younger people coming up and their contributions and what the trailblazing that you've allowed for someone else to do um, at the uh, Black Brothers of the Desert. Um, I'm always interested in seeing the younger people that come up that have not gone through what we have, but yet have their new challenges and, and that, and it's kind of exciting to, to see where we have allowed them to move forward enough so that they can then uh, compete a, a lot better. And I think that that's one of the things that we do in our stories is to give hope. Well, and we all stand on the shoulders of giants. Yes. I don't remember who to attribute that to, but, you know, all of us have been forever changed by every person we've ever met. I mean, I do believe that, I, you know, I, I do believe that a butterfly on this side of the world starts a hurricane on the other side of the mm -hmm. world. I mean, the connectedness of all of us and the, the, the power, I mean, every moment changes the trajectory of everything. Yeah. And yeah. we have decisions. We, we make decisions about how to live and express in each of those moments. So just think about all the change that happens when any individual chooses to express their truth just once, let alone for decades. And this is the message, is that whatever you say that your truth is, whatever you say that your mission statement is, and I, um, I'm working with a group and I'm asking them to write down their mission statements, their vision statements. And it is amazing that <clears throat> when we have conversations and all of a sudden they're starting to talk about this, that, the other thing, and, and you just look at them for a moment and they see where they go off mission, off vision, and then where they get in trouble. <laughs> so yes, having that sense of self uh, and wanting to show up authentically is so important. And so in do this- I Do uh, I have time? We have, I just, uh, we have just a few more minutes. And yes, if you can kind of sum up with that, I think that would be great. Okay, so my advice is live your life in the context of the greatest vision you are able to have for yourself without attachment to timeline and without attachment to specific outcome. If you revise this every day, what's truly important to you stays a part of your vision and the rest slips away. And you won't care how long it takes because it's so important to you. So timeline doesn't matter. And if you're not attached to a specific outcome, you allow a power greater than yourself to intervene and to help you along the way. And I'm going to end with, and so it is. So I want to thank everyone for uh, stopping and listening to this um, this conversation of, with Calvin. It uh, is available on the uh, Prospero's website along with others. Thank you again, Nicholas, for being our guest today. I so appreciate that with all that you're doing. And I will just say aloha. <laughs>